Hey, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Father Robert Spitzer is the author of many books. He is, well, I guess most recently best known for what is, as I've argued, is I think the most ambitious attempt to present the case for the Catholic faith in uh, the 21st century. It starts uh, formally. It has a, there's a quartet of books dealing with happiness, suffering, and transcendence. And then there comes a stated trilogy, two volumes are available now, that begins to deal with the role of the church in um, interior uh, transformation and conversion. And uh, Father Spitzer joins us today to look specifically into the second book in the trilogy, Escape from Evil's Darkness, The Light of Christ in the Church, Spiritual Conversion and Moral Conversion. And Father, it's great to have you back here. Thanks. Oh, Al, always great to be back with you. Can't get a better interview than from you. Well, thank you very much. Well, <coughs> this this project that you've been involved in is has been going on for a few years now, and it's really magnificent. Yeah. I mean, the architecture of it is beautiful, uh, and I'm glad uh, to have been able to interview you on it. For listeners who haven't been with us uh, before, uh, mm-hmm. do what you can to give us a quick overview of what you're trying to accomplish with this project. Well, the um, the project is actually to go through all three kinds of conversion. So there's seven volumes total to to help people do that. Now, I know that just sounds <laughs> onerous, but uh, but the point of fact, uh, you kind of need it. So I, I thought, well, the first thing I would work on is intellectual conversion. So, um, and the, the reason for that is if we don't have a real uh, intellectual ascent to God, then you may as well forget spiritual <laughs> conversion and moral conversion, right, because... Right. You know, um, you can't build a relationship with a God you don't believe in. Mm-hmm. So um, so I decided, well, I'm going to do a very thorough job. And um, so I, I, you know, in the first volume, I talked about happiness because uh, I just wanted to see, have people see that without level four happiness, you're, you're never going to be happy. You might think you'll be happy, but you won't. Mm-hmm. And here's uh, why you need God, and here's what to do to connect with God. And so... That was the first uh, volume. The second was level. Level. Um, well, let me just let me just stop for a minute. Level four happiness, as opposed to level one, two, three, and three. Exactly. What's one, what's so, one two, three? Uh, one is, of course, material and pleasure happiness. Mm-hmm. So that would be the kind of happiness that comes from an ice cream cone or perhaps a Mercedes five hundred E class with leather upholstery <laughs> uh, and uh, and a brand new model. Five. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the second, of course, would be eco-comparative happiness. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the kind of happiness that comes from getting status or popularity, respect or power or popularity or whatever it may be. So who's achieving more, who's achieving less, who's smarter, less smart, more beautiful, less beautiful, who's got more status, less status, more power, less power. But they're all worldly points, you know, of things that are points of comparison where we kind of put ourselves over against others. But mm-hmm. it's the okay. dominant form of happiness in our culture. I mean, we love to be winners, yeah. and yeah. we love to be acknowledged for it. And if <laughs> we're not, we can, and we live for it, you know, obviously we'd be pretty depressed. Yeah. And then, of course, level three, that's when I call it uh, grown, growing up time. You know, I'm never going to be perfectly happy 
by being better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, if you're smarter than everyone else, it's just not going to do it. It won't get the ball over the line. I'm not going to get a, a real profound meaning and purpose in life by by just saying, well, I was better at math than Joe, and I was better at athletics than Frank, but of course I'm never better at athletics than anybody. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, skip that. But, I mean, uh, nevertheless, even if you were better at everything and you did have more status, more power and more achievements and more intelligence, you name it, and you just think, gosh, I'm right at the top of my game, you would be left utterly empty. Uh, it's never enough. And plus, you're always in the midst of the comparison game, right? Uh, who's achieving more, who's achieving less, who's got more power, less power. And that leaves you in a variety of emotive states, uh, ranging from depression, jealousy, fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem, inferiority, superiority, ego rage, ego blame, self-pity, contempt for others, loneliness, profound loneliness. And, of course, at the end of the day, when you combine that with the emptiness you feel because you're making no contributions to anybody beyond yourself, you're a pretty miserable creature, (laughs) which you not only take it out on yourself, you take it out on everybody around you, and then ultimately, instead of blaming yourself, you blame God. Mm-hmm. So you're really sort of isolated in the end. You know, uh, St. Augustine's wonderful remark, right? Uh, the, the contemptuous man or the man who, even if he's at the top of his game, uh, or woman, um, you know, basically winds up being a lonely person because yeah. no one can stand to be around him. That's true. So, um, yeah. So that's uh, so I said. Well, what, what you can go to contribution. That's level three. That's yeah. level three. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's so where you, you grow, grow up. up. Mm-hmm. That's when you grow up and you say, okay, life's not about being better than everybody. Life is about making an optimal, positive difference to somebody or something beyond myself. That's what's really going to do it. Uh, and you might say, well, maybe. I have a gift for speaking. Well, then I'll use my speaking not to be better than everybody, but to make an optimal positive difference to my family, to my friends, to my, um, uh, you know, colleagues, uh, uh, to maybe the church, to the kingdom of God, to the society and, and my community around me. But I'm going to use this gift I have to do as much as I can with it, because at the end of the day, I don't care whether you're better than me or I'm better than you, that's not going to do it for me. What will do it for me is if I think I'm using my gifts or right to make an optimal positive difference to the world around me. So that's, that's a good grow-up time, but it's not a complete grow-up time. Because even if we are optimal, optimally involved in all kinds of wonderful things, right, uh, could be... Uh, um, you know, from A to Z, I'm using my speaking gifts, I'm using my writing gifts, I'm, and I'm, give, you know, to uh, doing it for everybody. There's still, if God isn't in the formula, in other words, if I'm only contributing to the people around me or to the institutions in the world around me, but I'm not making a difference to the eternal kingdom of God, and I don't have a relationship with God, that's absolutely key. If I don't have that friendship, that relationship with God, then, of course, I start slipping away. He's he's present in me. He's given me this constant invitation to be in relationship with him ever since I'm a little kid, right? But nevertheless, if I let that go, if I ignore him, if I don't go to church, if I 
you know, don't, uh, you know, practice some prayer, try to achieve some kind of a relationship with him, eventually, you know, that relationship grows distant, not because of him, but because of what I'm doing. I'm pulling away. And when that happens, then, of course, the feelings of what I call cosmic emptiness or spiritual emptiness, spiritual loneliness, spiritual alienation, Mm -hmm. spiritual guilt, right, all these things start loading up. And, of course, I, I think to myself, well, you know, why do I feel this way? But it begins to manifest itself as depression, anxiety, and that's why, you know, um, when the American Psychiatric Association did that big longitudinal study... Back in 2004? um, Yeah, that's the one. Yep. Um, And now there's six other studies verifying it, by the way, Um, and I can just send you those sites. Yeah, I'd like to know, sure. Well, yeah, they're really interesting. But the point is, is, yeah, you get not only depression and anxiety, but you know, very significantly higher suicide rates. I mean, we're talking about doubling and tripling uh, of substance abuse to familial tensions and um, antisocial aggressivity. So these are not happy campers. These are people who who, who lack uh, any faith in, in a transcendent God. Is that right? That's right, because deep down we have this yearning to be in not just a relationship with a personal God, we want ultimate meaning. Yeah. We want ultimate, you know, yep. well, purpose in life. Absolutely. We want eternity. We want, uh, you know, a relationship with a being that knows us better than we know ourselves and can bring us mm-hmm. to the absolute and the ultimate. And that's God alone. We want perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home. That's God alone. And so if we don't get it, Slowly but surely, we will feel lonely. Yeah. We feel all lonely just by ourselves and with our friends. I mean, we'll be in a living room looking around at all of our family members and suddenly feeling this great quake of of loneliness in the middle of all of our family members and friends. You can be at the big party, but if you're, if God's not at the party, yeah. you still feel this cosmic loneliness. Right. And, I mean, you're there shaving and, and looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning, and as you're looking at yourself at the mirror, nothing's coming back at you <laughs> except this big feeling of emptiness in the pit of your stomach. Yeah. I mean, the only way of getting rid of it, and you kind of know it. I'm a, just a big, substantially nothing-type guy you know, and, and, and you're, you're looking at yourself and you go, how am I going to get out of this state? Mm-hmm. God, God's the only one that can fill you up. Right. God's the only one that can give you true substance. And interestingly enough, you know this in, in your conscious and subconscious mind. And then, you know, the feelings of alienation, like I'm not at home in the world. I'm at, you know, I'm not a kilter. I'm not a kilter with the whole world. I'm, there's darkness and there's blackness out there and yes. there's depression. And, and so, it, again, it, God's not at, in, in the picture. We feel all these things, and that's where the depression and the anxiety and the suicide stuff is coming from. And uh, um, it's very, so basically I just say, okay, e- eventually if these things begin to happen to you symptomatically and you don't like it, I got a solution. Before you go to your therapist, go to church. Yeah. Listen to the little voice in the back of your mind mm-hmm. saying, you know, go into church. Just trust me for a moment. Yeah. You know, why don't you come and pray for a little while? Just trust that voice in the back of your mind. I assure you, <clears throat> the voice that is 
uh, urging you to go to church if you haven't been there for quite a while is not you. (laughs) You're going to have to overcome the guilt feelings. So that's not your voice. That voice you're hearing in the back of your mind, that's the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. That's uh, the Blessed Virgin. That's that's the voice you're hearing. Uh, And that's not the evil spirit, because the evil spirit never encourages anyone to go to church. So uh, for all intents and purposes, follow God. That little voice is telling you, I am here, I want to console you. You know, this is, uh, um, you know... Thing that make you happy. And in the you go through in those four volumes, you go through all the intellectual evidences. Uh, you mm-hmm. take a look at, of course, the great argument for the resurrection of Christ that we've got, the, the mm-hmm. scientific evidence for the uh, beginning of the universe, uh, the scientific yep. evidence dealing with uh, the uh, coherence of our experience. We'll be right back with Father Robert Spitzer. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Father Robert Spitzer, uh, is president of the Madja Center of Reason and Faith, also the Spitzer Center. He was president of Gonzaga University from 1998 to 2009. Father, in the uh, the quartet that you put up, you uh, answered questions like, why would an all-loving God allow suffering? Uh, Mm -hmm. Does suffering have any benefit for us? You looked at uh, objective evidence for God, uh, for the soul Mm -hmm. that survives bodily death, the resurrection of Jesus. And Mm -hmm. you really give a comprehensive examination of the contemporary evidences that are out there for God, the Mm -hmm. soul, resurrection. But that wasn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) And I can remember when you told me you were doing the trilogy to follow it. My first question was, how are you, what are you going to do to top what you just did? What was it about, what was unfinished about the quartet? What drove you to the trilogy? Yeah, well, the quartet was really basically oriented toward intellectual conversion, mm-hmm. getting intellectual assent to God, the transphysical soul, to Jesus as the Son of God, and to get the answer to the question of suffering, why would an all-loving God allow suffering? That gives us the pathway to get to spiritual conversion. So then the next step, once you do intellectual conversion, you you have to move to the next step. It's not good enough to just say, well, I believe, you know, God's out there, and I'll, um, you know, do the occasional prayer there. We really have to move to to a relationship with the Lord. And the reason is uh, twofold. Now, first of all, because the Lord has intended us to be in relationship with with Him, and when we do that, we become, you know, completed, not just fulfilled. We we are completed in ourselves. You know, Saint Augustine is correct: "For Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee." So the idea then um, uh, for me was to say, okay, there's got to be this relationship with God, but wait a minute. There is also another spirit out there you should be aware of, yes. and that spirit that does not have your best interests in mind. Yeah. He is uh, Satan, and his whole uh, you know obsession is to bring you into hell. Your his whole obsession is to seduce you away from God. His whole obsession is to turn you into a person who is not yourself who is going to be radically incomplete, as he is radically incomplete without God for the rest of eternity. That's his obsession, 
just thought <clears throat> you might like to know. So in the first volume of the trilogy, I thought there is really a spiritual combat out there. Yeah. There really is a, a, you know, an evil spirit, and so I gave evidence for that evil spirit. A lot of, a lot of modern sh- theologians, a lot of modern theologians would really shy away from discussing yeah. the whole issue of Satan. Uh, but your first yeah. book in the trilogy is actually called Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. So you're not shying yeah. away from evidence uh-huh. for the diabolical. No, in fact, uh, I basically thought, <laughs> you know, you're naive if you, first of all, shy away from your spiritual enemy. That's just like saying, if I just put my hands in front of my eyes, I won't have to, you know, think about anybody bad seeing <laughs> me or acting against me. Right. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So, you you know, forewarned is forearmed. So the first thing is, is I thought, truth in advertising, we're not alone uh, in this world just with other people and with God. We also have a terrible spiritual opponent. And I also give, at the same time, all the evidence for the Holy Spirit's presence in the world. Mm-hmm. So I spend the whole of Chapter 1 uh, talking about the Holy Spirit's presence, but also then Chapter 3 about um, uh, you know the, the evil spirit's presence in the world. And you might think, well, what's Chapter 2 about? Well, it's about the fact that Jesus defeated Satan. Yeah. So, um, yeah, did Jesus believe in Satan? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe all the theologians today don't believe in Satan, but Jesus most certainly did. Yeah. And besides bringing the kingdom of God to earth, besides redeeming us from our sins, integral to both of those missions is the third mission— of defeating Satan definitively. Yes. And that's what he's doing. So I chapter 2 go through that whole thing. But yes, Satan is real. So chapter 4 talks about, well, what are the tactics that he uses? And he uses very um, overt tactics like temptations, Mm -hmm. you know, right to the imagination. And uh, then he uses also deceitful tactics. So he's uh, also trying to not just be tricky, but deceive you, uh, so completely that he can discourage you, he can give you the wrong notion of God, he can get you on the wrong pathway. And so if he can't get you through overt temptations, he's going to try and deceive you. And if that doesn't work, then he's going to try and load you up with all kinds of scrupulosity, accusations, and guilt. In other words, he's got all kinds of little arrows in his quiver, so in Chapter 4, I thought, okay, better go through and look at these tactics of Satan. Mm-hmm. Not just how does he work against you individually, but how does he work through the culture against yeah. you? How the does world. he work through yeah. other people? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so then in the fifth and sixth chapters that completes the book, I talk about the eight deadly sins. And the reason is, is because those are his favorite tools. Yeah. He always, as St. Ignatius of Loyola says, he's like an enemy commander. He's looking around the fort. You're the fort. <laughs> and, of course, what uh, uh, the objective is to find the weak point in the fort. And there he will focus all of his strength and take you by storm. That's his tactic. It still is to this day. Um, he hasn't changed a lot. And, of course, you have to answer the question, well, if Jesus has defeated him, how come Satan could be so strong in the world today? Brief answer, because God gave us free choice by making us in his image. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other story. 
but uh, essentially got to explain that, and of course got to explain that um, if you really want to stay out of the grip of Satan, you got to go to volume two. Escape, if you're really yep. going to escape from evil's darkness, yeah. you're going to have to go to volume two. Yeah. And so that's, uh, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, that's great. That is a, a wonderful way to get in, because like I said, this is this all hangs together beautifully, and um, <clears throat> so let me lead. Let me lead with a question, which is sure. uh, right there at the beginning. <clears throat> We're living in a time, uh, American culture, which is very uh, down on organized religion or religious yeah. inst- membership in religious institutions. Uh, mm-hmm. So, one question that people have, even if they are, have an interest in quote spiritual things, mm-hmm. why do we need a church? Uh, yeah. Why? Why? Can't I mean you know Americans tended to go on their own right? I like to do things yeah. myself. Uh, yeah. Why do we need a church or a community? Yeah, well, let me give you uh, just my my one thought about it because it conjoins with what we were talking about previously, mm-hmm. namely one of Satan's all time best plans is to convince you you don't need a religion and you don't need a church. Yeah. And here's why the deception is so great. He tells you, you know, you can just be in your room all by yourself there and do your own little prayers. Here's the four problems. Number one, if you're just doing your prayers by yourself, how can you be sure that you've identified all the the answers to the questions that reason and science can't answer? Okay, reason and science can give you a lot of evidence that God exists. He can, uh, reason and, and, and science can give you a lot of evidence for who God, what God is, if you know, but what God is. He's an unconditional, unrestricted act of understanding, understanding itself, which is continuously creating all else that is. You could, so you could get something along those lines, the what of God. But you're not going to get the who of God. You're not going to get the heart of God. You, science and reason are helpless before the heart. You'll never get whether God's going to redeem suffering or not redeem suffering. You're never going to get, well, is there a heaven and is there a hell? Is there a purgatory? I mean, what does God have in mind in the afterlife? What's God's intention anyway? Is he up there going uh, in heaven? Hmm, Spitzer, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. Oh, (laughs) hell for you. You know, obviously he's not doing that, but how would you know that? If you didn't have Jesus Christ, how would you know that if you did not have a definitive interpretation of Jesus Christ's uh, words? So people say, okay, you know, okay, okay, maybe maybe there's a reason because uh, I, I need a source of revelation, a definitive source of revelation. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Second thing is, do you really think that you're going to maintain your um, uh, level of commitment? You're going to maintain that without any uh, um, uh, uh, accountable uh, agent outside of yourself. You think you don't have to be accountable to anybody? You think you can just stay in your room and without a human agent or some visible agent who really does have the credibility for you to be accountable to? Do you really think you're going to stay on the road diligently? Well, lots of people have tried, but it hasn't worked very well. <laughs> In 99.9% of the cases, it's people who have a religious commitment within a church community that stay accountable. The guys who do the old deistic thing sort of drift off on their own and ultimately wind up sort of being Gnostics that, 
eventually go into the new age or something else where accountability is a mere fiction. Whatever you want, yeah. just have yeah. a crystal and you'll be okay. Self-styled okay. religion, right? Self-styled yeah. religion. So that's that's the second. You know, I mean, this is so so perfect. The third thing is, do you think that communi- the com- the support of the community, the friends you have in the church, the priests that you interact with, do you think that they give you no support for your religion? <laughs> Not just accountability, uh, you know, to to be a uh, you know a, a source of accountability, but a source of real support when you need some help when you've got questions, uh, especially. When you're, you've sinned and you feel the guilt, you feel that you are separated, you feel the emptiness, the alienation, the loneliness, you think you can just sit in your room and will it all away without the sacraments, without the sacrament of reconciliation, without the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, without the help of the community, without the help of a, a communal prayer. You think you can just get rid of guilt, alienation, loneliness, and, and, and emptiness on the cosmic spiritual level, you know, by, by just uh, willing it away? I tell you, 99.9% of the people who have tried this have failed miserably. And, of course, you need a religion. It is precisely that community. And in in the Catholic Church, writ large, made perfect, the support of the community is in the grace of the sacraments that Jesus gave us. Father, hold it there. We'll come back, continue. My guest, Father Robert Spitzer, we're looking at his most recent contribution to this trilogy. Uh, The book is called Escape from Evil's Darkness. We've got more coming up on the other side of the break. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Father Robert Spitzer, is author most recently of Escape from Evil's Darkness, The Light of Christ in the Church, Spiritual Conversion, and Moral Conversion. We were talking uh, last segment about the Catholic Church and spiritual conversion, and through this part one, he's talking about the Catholic Church, lays out the historicity of Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapter 16, where Peter is commissioned. He looks then at uh, evidence for Peter's, uh, the Petrine primacy, did Peter's successors exercise jurisdiction? He then goes on to talk about the uh, spiritual conversion and the outer church, uh, the sacramental life. Chapter 3 looks at spiritual conversion and the inner church, the life of prayer. And we can come back there, but I did want to ask you about this movement in part 2, from spiritual conversion to moral conversion. Distinguish mm-hmm. those for us. Yeah, so the the objective of spiritual conversion is to deepen our relationship with the Lord so that we come to know Him and He comes to know us ever more deeply. So as you deepen your spiritual conversion, right, this is going to pay lots of dividends for your moral conversion, because as you get to know the Lord more and more, and He matters more and more to you in your life, and the Blessed Virgin Mary matters more and more to you in your life, as the the divinity becomes progressively not just more important in your life and, and matters more, but also He's your best friend. Mm-hmm. So you begin to know Him so well that He turns from a friend to a real good friend to a best friend. I mean that really on the emotional level, mm-hmm. you know, the, the relationship is so deep that you, 
you know, he is your best friend. You turn to yes. him with everything, and, and you know how he communicates. So you know when he's turning back to you in consolations, with desolations, with the little voice in the back of your head, with the Holy Spirit's guidance, with conspiracies of divine providence, mm-hmm. with the school of the cross. You, you know it all. Yeah. And so you, he's really a good friend. Now, when that happens, you know, when you think about doing something sinful, Sometimes you could say, well, I don't want to do something sinful because maybe that will be found out by the newspapers and something bad will happen. Or I don't want to do something sinful because that might hurt this other person and I don't want to hurt that other person. Or maybe you're really unscrupulous, you might not care about that, but nevertheless, the point is, is there's all kinds of reasons. Then you might say, well, I don't want to go to hell, you know, so I I don't want to do that uh, sinless because I'm, I'm scared of hell. But really, when the spiritual conversion gets going, you don't want to do that because, in the words of the act of contrition, because they offend thee, my God, who are truly all good and truly deserving of all my love, which he is. When your prayer life is deep, that, those words are like blazing off the, the page at you. They're, they're, they're so deeply felt that the the idea of sort of betraying Mary or betraying the Lord, in, in you know, as you kind of you know go after whatever deadly sin it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that you're you're questing, you, you get that sense right away, and then as you, your your deep conversion is going, right, you have such a, a sense of God's presence and consolation in your life that if you start getting off that path, wow. You know, it's not just the guilt and the regrets that come. You really do almost instantly start feeling this emptiness of separation, this loneliness of separation, this alienation of separation, etc. And and it's just like, whoa! You know, and so you're back on the path immediately because you can't stand having separated yourself off from God. These people really know how important the sacrament of confession and reconciliation really is. And so, uh, again, that, that spiritual conversion is really, really important to the moral conversion. But moral conversion goes further. Its objective is threefold. The first thing moral conversion wants to do is to not just have a repugnance of sin, because that, that'll come right away, but it's also a love of virtue. And, and you, you look at that and you go, well, that, there's two dimensions to this. That's right, repugnance at sin, and we learn that because we see that sin has consequences, mm-hmm. and they can be pretty rough consequences. Yes. But then, the love of virtue, it's not just that the virtue itself protects me from sin, it's also that the virtue itself comes from God. It's His gift to me. And it's also that virtue itself is just plain good itself. Worth having then, for its own sake, yes. It's happiness for its own sake. It's beauty mm-hmm. for its own sake. It's the beauty of the good writ large. And so you go, oh, I love these virtues. That's number one, is when you start feeling that sense of the love of virtue, and not just the repugnance or fear of sin, that's a good start. Then the second part of is of moral conversion is you get really pretty good at resisting sin. So in other words, the temptation comes along, and when the temptation comes, all of a sudden you kind of know, oh, this is contrary to God. I don't want to really shame God or betray Him. I don't want to do anything bad to the Lord or His kingdom. You know, I, you know, I don't want to do that. And it's just like it, it's already yes. there. 
as the temptation is being served up by our spiritual enemy. And then the second, you know, thing you'll notice that also happens at the same time is you deeply do not want to jeopardize anybody else's salvation. I don't want to use anybody else, but I also don't want to drag anybody else uh, in, into a sinful situation, right? I, I mean, that that would just be dread on all scores. And then finally, you know, you, you really do think to yourself, my spiritual enemy will look for every single solitary point, you know, to, to, to get me and to bring me into his darkness in any way possible, and especially to discourage me. So when you recognize these three things, I just don't want to shame or betray God. I just don't want to do anything to hurt anybody or hurt their salvation. And I just got to make sure my spiritual enemies are looking for every opportunity to keep him at bay. Right. Once you've got those three things are strong in your mind, from your, and you get that partially, uh, in good part, right, from your spiritual conversion, then you turn around and you now you've got a fighting chance. Right to really resist temptations as those temptations come up, but then there's also a third dimension. Right, so the the third dimension is uh, pretty clear as well, and, and um, that is what Saint Paul calls the transition from the old man to the new man. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's or the old self to the new self mm-hmm. in the contemporary jargon, but it means the same thing. Basically, we're born into the world. Let's face it, with concupiscence, baptism gives us a, a you know a leg up, and that's pretty good, but mm-hmm. not both legs up. Yeah. Uh, because uh, right, we we've still got to use the Holy Spirit, use the inspiration, follow the commandments of the Lord, etc. So all of these things are really important, and we got to get ourselves focused. I really want to become the new man. And I can tell you, it's a hard, arduous process, right? I've got a lot of arrogance and pride in me, you know, and Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of, you know, impatience in me, and I've got uh, all kinds of things that are, you know, in me, and I know they're there, and I know they're still there. But you do make progress. And the one thing is, if you keep working at this, and you keep, you know, doing what the Jesuits would call the examine prayer, which I explained in Chapter 6, and you start also, you know, doing affirmation prayers, things like that, the subconscious mind's going to come along with the conscious mind. So you can say consciously, I don't want to be an arrogant rat anymore. But then, of course, some stimulus comes, and you become an arrogant rat, you know, almost instantly. <laughs> so, for example, you know, I mean, I remember once, even I was a priest, I'm shaking hands with people going out of Holy Trinity Church, which is a church at Georgetown. I was teaching at Georgetown University at the time. So anyway, people are coming out, and this one guy says, Hey, rejoice with me. My new book is coming out, and it's going to have this and that and the other thing. And the one thing, the urge that was trying to come out of me is, but my book will be so much more superior than that. Thank God I didn't say it. But <laughs> nevertheless, the urge, you know, is, is just, you know, but uh, yes. you, you can't help it. It's, it's almost inbuilt. And right, so you've got to right. start working on the subconscious part, you know, you because it's still there. And so, you know, the perfect kind of thing, you know, that's why Paul says, remember in Chapter 7 of Romans, you know, why do I do what I don't want to do? I, I do the evil I would not do, and I do not do the good that I would do. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of flesh? Yeah. Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, who rescues me. Right. So the, the point, of course, is, is even St. Paul That's right. is still struggling. Yeah. Going from the old self to the new self is a tough road to hoe, 
and it requires a lot of work and habits, and you can always get dragged back in when you're not, you know, really like the sentinel at the door, right? You've got to be super vigilant. But, you know, um, we can't, you know, it, it takes time. But if we concertedly stay on the path, the subconscious mind going to come along with the conscious mind, and the spirit, that's our natural uh, disposition, will be what the Holy Spirit is inciting us to and not what the evil spirit is inciting us to. You spend a lot so, of time, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. but I say you spend a lot of time in the book here focusing on the sacrament of reconciliation, too, as, as yeah. again, turning away from the old man and embracing uh, the new man, the, the, who we are in Christ. Talk to us about the importance of the grace available to us through the sacrament of reconciliation. Yeah, it's the most under-recognized, most important, uh, you know, so, well, of course, the Holy Eucharist is the source and summit of everything mm-hmm. in our lives, but, but this is the most under-recognized uh, sacrament ever. And, I mean, uh, I can only tell you that if people really knew the power of this sacrament, not just for breaking the grip of Satan, which it certainly does, mm-hmm. and not just for the absolution um, that it gives for mortal and venial sin, which that, of course, is super important, but it's also got this very good healing gift if we allow it to start the healing process, to start that regeneration process. It also has this power to turn our life on a dime. I mean, how many people do you know, you know, who have kind of been away from the Church, and, uh, you know, they go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and then all of a sudden, right after they receive that sacrament, right after that grace is in there, right after they get the peace and the joy of the Spirit reconstituting them again, notice what happens. It's like they pivot. No, they turn right around, Mm -hmm. and they start moving in a completely different direction so fast that, uh, you know, it it just amazes people. And, and, you know, have you ever been to one of those focus conferences, uh, seek conferences, you know, where you get the thousands of of kids who are standing in line for that sacrament? Mm, Well, it goes on. It's amazing. But it's the joy on those kids' faces as they are heading out the door. You know, some of them, you know, haven't been to confession in a long time. Some of them got themselves in deep waters, you know, and they're coming out that door, and they're almost ebullient as they're walking out. And it goes on until 2 in the morning, yeah. because they're, I'm not kidding when I say thousands of kids are in line. Yeah. They're lined up going all the way down the hallway uh, of the um, meeting rooms of the hotels. I mean, it's just, just amazing. But my point is, it, the, these kids are getting to a pivot point, right? They're getting to a turning point. And you can see that another momentum is being created. If the kid follows the momentum, right, so in other words, he doesn't just pivot and stop, but if the kid pivots and keeps moving in the opposite direction, and in other words, a good direction toward God, um, away from the sinful direction, and he really does fo- you know, follow the momentum through, it, it really can become transitional. And that's that grace of that... Sacrament of Reconciliation, so many graces, a healing grace, that grace, uh, you know, to, to resolve and to move in another direction, a grace of conversion, and of course, absolution, and of course, just breaking the grip of the devil. Yeah. Nothing the devil hates worse than a repentant sinner who says, i got to get to confession. <laughs> I mean, those are the worst words the devil can hear. You know? <laughs> True. Honestly. True. Yeah, it represents yeah. his defeat. 
Jesus well, came yeah. to destroy the works of the devil. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and it's so indisputable. I mean, how can any church uh, say that this is, you know, not instituted by Jesus? I mean, just read John 20, 21 through 23. Right. Hello. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Father, once again, thank you so much for all that you do and uh, for taking the time to be with me today. Uh, again, thank you for the project. I'm enjoying it. And uh, oh, great. I want to do what I can to make people aware of it. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Bye-bye. Father Robert Spitzer, Escape from Evil's Darkness.